You're listening to TIP. But the analytical approach started with measuring new things, which was a lot of painstaking work, and then data analysis could happen after that. That is the exact same approach that I have taken to apartment floor plans. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down with Bobby Fion and talk about his quest to become the Bill James of apartment floor plans, how he got his start as a real estate developer, what his experience of doing office to residential conversions has been like, what some of the biggest design errors are, and what makes for a great floor plan. Bobby's been involved in real estate startup companies his entire career, and in 2011, he started Cross Properties with three other partners in the basement of a seminary. In 2021, he founded Form Analytics, which is a data technology company that optimizes apartment floor plans. Form has assembled the largest mapped database of apartments in the U.S., and with their proprietary database, helps maximize the revenue per square foot for ground-up multifamily projects. I only got to about half my questions that I wanted to ask Bobby. I found him incredibly thoughtful and insightful about all aspects of real estate, and I really enjoyed hearing about the progression of his career, which has been quite remarkable. And so, without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Bobby Fion. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is a really special guest I'm excited to have on the show, Bobby Fion. Bobby, welcome to the show. Very glad to be here, Patrick. Excited to have you. I found out about you like many of our guests recently on Real Estate Twitter. And on your bio, it says that you're the Bill James of floor plans. I wasn't 100% sure who Bill James was, so I had to look that up. I kind of had an inkling. But tell us who he is and why you are or consider yourself or want to be the Bill James of apartment floor plans. Bill James is the Moneyball guy, like, but 25, 30 years, like before Moneyball actually got started. And what he would do is he would take like individual box scores from the newspaper and then create new statistics out of them. We don't use most of the statistics that he invented like a long time ago, but it established the pattern for how you're going to analyze things. You had to measure new stuff. You know, for a long time, baseball was winners were, pitchers were judged by the number of wins and losses, maybe by their earned run average and some things like that. But as long as you had these very old school statistics, there wasn't much like deeper analysis you could do. You could combine different things like they came up with doubles, doubles or double doubles in basketball or 30, 30 years. Like you had 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases, and people just kind of assumed that those were good. But the analytical approach started with measuring new things, which was a lot of painstaking work, and then data analysis could happen after that. That is the exact same approach that I have taken to apartment floor plans, where there's a tremendous amount of data out there, mainly that is trapped within the image of the two-dimensional floor plan. So what that has taken is a whole lot of work, a little bit of software tools, but most hard work of taking those units and saying, I'm going to measure a whole bunch of different things and describe space with, right now, it's about 140 different variables. So instead of a one-bedroom being described as, a unit being described as a one-bedroom that's 635 square feet, in the same way you know that a basketball player wouldn't say, I had this many points, this many rebounds, and this many assists, 
it's room A has dimensions X and Y. It has a closet of linear hanging length, this, and it either has windows or it doesn't. The living room width is that. And once you measure all those different things, which is annoying, and like I said, it took the better part of two and a half years, then you could do some really interesting analysis and say, which things do people actually care about? And so like, again, like you've seen different units being built that have kitchens that are equivalent size to like a single family home or a small single family home. And without any data to challenge that assumption, people will build what they have done before in a way that's efficient in construction, or they'll take unit plans they did before and just repeat them because there's no data to tell them that's wrong or right. I'd say uh, the other reason why I, I view Bill James as something that I model that I strive for is I appreciate that he was doing this 25 years before anything happened, like till it really caught mainstream. And I would say, I think that real estate data, floor plan data specifically, but real estate data is in its very early infancy. It's difficult to come up with like very precise, um, very good metrics. I'm still frankly like inventing them by combining different things or measuring stuff. And I fully anticipate that with the kind of data that I am generating, as I can give that to more people or integrate that with other kind of analysis and other people's, other people's data, that that's when we can really unlock how to make things significant better. Again, right now, people do things based on precedent and based on the way they think they were done before. And sometimes people don't exactly realize the incentives that are pushing units in different directions. Houses are getting larger different features. And, and there isn't really good feedback on, do people want that or not? Does that actually drive revenue or not? That's why I consider myself the Bill James of floor plans. It is meant to be humorous and it does touch like a very specific spot in my analytical method. And it also touches something that's aspirational for me too. Was Bill James able to profit from his methods and analysis or was he a little, I mean, was he too early to the game? Most of the latter. I mean, he was brought on as a consultant with the Boston Red Sox, but he didn't profit in the way that kind of like the new class of data people have, which is now it's just considered standard. Like everyone has analytics teams, very well compensated people. And Bill James was not a part of that. And I'd say based on different things that he writes and other things, he's not particularly concerned by that. I mean, I don't know how he feels on the inside. Maybe that's different, but he was not. He never became like a GM. He never like built a team or anything like that, but he did. He changed the game of baseball. That's undeniable. And that I think is very cool. He had to have faced a lot of headwinds introducing basically incredibly new ideas to the game. Are you experiencing the same kind of headwinds doing something similar within development and apartments and construction? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't mind it. And I'd say based on my experience as a developer, like I understand where it comes from. Real estate data and real estate pricing, which is what floor plan data gets towards in the same way that baseball is getting towards like value has a lot of these very complicated data things like economic data, seasonal things. And then when something goes right, it's not always exactly clear why. So there are plenty of people who say, I've been doing this right for a long time. I've made plenty of money in the last like few years. It almost doesn't really matter what you do. We have such like a disparity between supply and demand that you can kind of build whatever you want and things will go well. There is that pushback, which I understand. And I think that that makes sense. But there are definitely people who, and many of them, who understand that they are building without any guardrails and they want to do better. Sim similar to Bill James, there are people who are early believers. And those are the people that I enjoy getting to work with. My company is still early on that. It does require some degree of understanding and leniency like on their behalf. But I have found Twitter to be particularly helpful 
And it's one of the reasons why I talk in public about it, because the people who reach out and the people who are interested are, for lack of a better word, like already believers. It, this also has to do with the kind of the nature of data analysis. It's very rare that you will find data analysis that just takes a perfectly open mind and finds some new solution. Usually it's, I have this hypothesis, I want to prove that I'm right, or I have this conclusion that I've already come to, I need data to justify it. Like, is it out there? It does, in fact, solve that purpose. Long-winded way of saying, yes, there are headwinds, but there are plenty of people who are believers. And within a few years, I'm confident that it will be demonstrated in returns. And then it isn't a matter of believing it or not. It's just a matter of you can see that it works. In the same way that sports analytics have taken over, you would be, as an owner, as a GM, you would be a derelict, right? Like if you did not like look at different stuff. Makes sense. We're going to get more into form analytics a little bit in the interview. But I wanted to ask, like, if you're sitting on an airplane, sitting next to a guy that maybe isn't involved in real estate at all, how do you explain to him what you do that makes sense to him that he can easily understand? I don't get into that kind of detail. I'll always say something like, I have a real estate data technology company, or I'm a real estate investor, or I'm a real estate developer. All of those things are true. And it kind of depends like how, how detailed the conversation is. I mean, I could talk about data and floor plans for a cross-country flight. But if it's going to be something short, I'll say, I have a real estate data technology company. And are there follow-up questions after that usually? <laughs> or is it like, huh, okay. Oh, well, if it's something that's that vague, then not really. But if I end up going in the direction of saying, they might say like, where do you do this? Or what kind of data do you do? Or what, what projects have you built in? Then I'll end up getting into floor plans. And once I get into floor plans, everyone's like, but like one of those, which is always fun is everyone has an opinion on floor plans, which make it like a really good, it, it's why it makes a really good discussion like on Twitter. But I've never encountered that kind of conversation where someone didn't say, oh, I lived in a really great unit or I'm really, this thing worked really well, or I hated how this flowed. And so there's a lot of opinions. And that to me is one of the reasons why like apartment floor plan data is good because when units are all built in the same way and there's a disparity of opinions about it, the only way to really sift through those is to measure a lot of different things and see what you know is you can't just build the same thing, which is more or less what's being done right now. I wanted to ask you as a kid, which did you excel more at? Or which were, did you gravitate more towards, Monopoly or Legos? I read that kids are more in touch with like their true passions and their true gifts between like the ages of 7 to 14. And then through the process of education, it kind of makes us lose our way a bit. Your background was in, is in math and econ, and you started your career at Cross as a developer. And now you're, I believe, more involved with design. As a kid, did young Bobby gravitate more towards Monopoly and the wheeling and dealing of Monopoly or more towards the design aspects of Legos? Well, I had a very unusual upbringing. I was homeschooled K through 12, which, you know, being in my late 30s is more unusual. So my educational background was driven very much by what was I interested in. So I would say on that specific question, definitely like Legos or I think um, Connects, like where you have the little engines and you're building things together and you're using your creative mind to figure that stuff out. That definitely was more than Monopoly. I've never been into strategy games personally, just never kind of caught on. But Legos connects. But mostly I'd say I spend a whole lot of time reading. I read a ton of children's literature, which I don't even know how I use it today, but there was almost nothing that gave me more pleasure than just reading by myself. And being homeschooled, I had plenty of time by myself. I did play sports um, pretty competitively. I played piano as well. But my experience, again, for kind of like my generation is a little more unusual, but grateful for it. 
who handled your education then? Your mother? Was that outsourced? 50-50. My father was a mechanical engineering professor for a little while and to this day has the highest horsepower brain I've ever met in my life. He got his PhD at MIT and is just, like I said, smart on a different, on like a different level of anyone I've ever met. Like I was grateful to grow up with someone like him and that I could see that I knew from an early age, like what it was like for someone's brain to be able to solve problems and remember things at just an extraordinary level. And I knew that wasn't me, although I certainly learned a lot from him. To the answer, my dad handled math and science and my mom handled everything else. He did not work at home when I was eight. He left academia and went into consulting. And so he still had plenty of time at home. Both of my parents were very involved, but that was kind of the division of responsibilities. And you grew up in Philly? No, no. I grew up all over the country. My dad was at MIT, so I grew up in a dorm at MIT for my first four years. And then when I was four, we moved to Ann Arbor. And then after my dad left academia, we moved every two to four years, one to four years actually, in Northern California, South Jersey, Phoenix, suburbs of Philadelphia on the Pennsylvania side. And then I went to school in LA initially. Moved around a lot. And I'd say Philadelphia became my home just by virtue of living there for 15 years. Did they place any high expectations on you? Like, we want you to go to MIT. We want you to get a PhD. We want higher education for sure. Was that an expectation that was set for you? I don't want this to turn into like a therapy session too no, much. No, 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 for sure uh, not. But no, no, no. But, I'm, <laughs> no, but I, I appreciate it. No, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. And frankly, something I'm still working through a little bit as my kids are getting older. You know, so my son is my oldest is eight. My daughter is turned six on Saturday and my youngest is four. So education is something that's top of mind. And I think about that a lot. I would say explicitly, I don't, they said the opposite, that like, that I could do things and that they did not put high expectations on me. And yet I also know that by the age of 12, I was very motivated by that. I was like reading college rankings, like things like that by the time I was 12 and 13. There's a degree in which like that idea didn't naturally occur. Like that's an unusual thing for someone to do. I don't think that I've got that on my own. So I was overly concerned with like academic status and things like that when I was young. And I don't blame them for that per se. I, there were high expectations in terms of like hard work. Part of being homeschooled, I mean, um, I did school six days a week throughout the year. So I did about 280 days of school. I think when public schools, private schools, about 180. So I was quite advanced, particularly in math. I finished calculus by the time I was 14. and just by not ever having to relearn something or take time at the beginning of the year to like, it was just from the age of seven to 14, it was just, you go straight through math. So I wouldn't, I'm not trying to be overly modest, but I wouldn't consider myself to be like a mathematical mind. I would more say that it was just consistent hard work and learning constantly. Was it math? This was the subject that you gravitated mostly towards, or you mentioned reading too. I'd say math was always the thing that I was best at. I mean, it's hard to judge like how someone is good at reading. I enjoyed reading. I read probably 10 hours of fiction a week, like even outside of school. I just enjoyed that. I was never a terrifically good writer, which is frankly one thing that I've enjoyed about Twitter. It's like it has made me a much, much better writer, a much better communicator. So I'd say math, I always knew I was good comparatively. It's, it's a much easier thing to say, I have done more than you, I've done more than you, I've done more than you. I did learn to think about things in that way. I did a lot of decent number of like statistical projects with my dad. I remember kind of on the sports analytics, sports statistics side, like my 
junior year of high school, my team was pretty good. And I was just trying to figure out, well, how good are we in the state? And so I imported a large data set of all the different high school scores. And then you do, you know, like Monte Carlo simulation stuff to like see how people would do against each other. And it just kind of, kind of built that with my dad. I always thought about those things. I always enjoyed them. And it was certainly the subject in which I was objectively the most advanced. And so you went to Penn, got your undergrad in math and, math and econ, started a master's program in mathematics? Applied math, yep. Met an undergrad classmate who had bought a seminary. Some of those things are, I can say, I was in school and I did run into a friend from undergrad and he was with a few other guys and together they were under contract by a seminary. It was a strange time in the real estate market. You could put deals under contract for soft deposits. That was what year, 2011, 10? This was 2000, end of 2010, beginning of 2011. Yeah. And I definitely wasn't drawn to real estate particularly. Like I'd never taken a class and it was, I was definitely on track to uh, go to New York. And the reason I want to study math is because I wanted to work for a quite heavy hedge fund or something like that. But what I really enjoyed over the first like few months of just kind of trying it out or helping them out was I enjoyed the idea of entrepreneurship. I was just very inspired by some of the ideas one of my other partners talked about of the ideas of bringing buildings back to life, of trying to do something that is tangible. And then I just really enjoyed working with them. So I, I, I became an entrepreneur and I think that's what I ended up falling in love with. And then there were some things that made it easier. Even I was married and my wife was soon to be graduating as a nurse. So I knew that she'd be able to pay the bills, although I didn't anticipate how long she was going to need to have to do that. But there was that flexibility. My parents had also generously paid for my school, so I didn't have any student debt. So it was, it was a good time to be an entrepreneur. And I realized that, that that is what I wanted to do, was to be an entrepreneur within real estate. And I, I fell in love with the real estate later, I'd say. I've got two questions. One... Did you do entrepreneurial projects as a kid? Was that part of your homeschooling? Was that something that was part of you as a young guy or was it just kind of just developed in your 20s? No, definitely not. I don't think I was entrepreneurial at all. Like, again, I was you know, like kids who are driven by getting into top schools and things like that. I was very driven by, by that. I, I think I was on track going to be a lawyer or investment banker or doctor or something like that, you know, high status, high education. I also spent so much time studying. There weren't many, there wasn't frankly time for entrepreneurial stuff. And my parents encouraged that. They encouraged study and reading and sports too. But also, I mean, my dad started his own business when I was a sophomore in high school. So I did see what that was like for better and for worse. There were, you know, some things that I observed that I wanted to copy and other things that I saw that were, I think the main one important lesson that I did learn in high school as entrepreneurship was that you're an entrepreneur first and you're a practitioner second. I did learn that rather than you can't just be brilliant and have like business or you can't just be brilliant and succeed in sales or, or, or business in general or things like that. You need to focus on your business while also being good, while also doing good work. So it's, it is both. For sure. So the second question was, how did they take it? How did your wife take it when you informed them that you were drop out of the master's program to pursue this real estate dream? And that developed over time, right? The real estate the love for real estate developed over time. I'd say the desire to do it happened like pretty rapidly. How did my wife take it? Well, she's an amazing woman. Even, you know, a young age, she was 21 at the time. And I'd say she said, follow your dreams, do what it is you want. 
but not in that flippant way. Like it's easy to say that. And then, you know, what she did by proving that was working and paying our family's bills and our family's rent for the next like three years. So I'd say by virtue of her actions after that proved like that she did mean that. That's how it happened. I didn't, you know, ask permission of my parents or anything like that. It was just her. I'd also say that there was quite a bit of naivety. And I thought we were going to be successful a lot faster than we were. I mean, we ended up being successful relatively quickly for real estate. You know, we rode the market up, but I saw big numbers like earlier than I thought. So I would say I didn't lie. Oh, anyway, I definitely fooled myself in thinking that the success was going to come a lot faster than that it did. The pitch that I was giving was not, Hey, honey, I need you to keep food on the table for three years. It was, this is a terrific opportunity. I love working with these guys. You know, I think we, I think we can do incredibly well. And this is the time to start an entrepreneurial company. And if I'm wrong and I lose all our money in two years, well, I'll go get my MBA and I'll have like terrific stories. That was my general pitch. And that's a, a pretty good pitch and jump into entrepreneurship. We did have kids, weren't going to have them anytime soon. And so it was kind of the time to take a risk. Yeah, I think I understood that risk and reward pretty clearly. That's awesome to have that support though. My dad was a, my dad is a developer and was in a similar spot. Started a, his business when he was young. My mom was a nurse. They lived on her salary. He had two kids, myself and my, my middle brother at the time. And I think the first year in business, he made like $272 with a family. You know, you can't do that if you don't have a supportive spouse behind you to, so he gives incredible, you know, props to my mom for allowing his success. Like a huge part of the success is because of her. I mean, it's one reason why, I mean, I get asked on Twitter and elsewhere, different people like how do I get started? And there are some individual things I'm, I'm usually loath to say, you know, follow my path because it isn't one that I would recommend. Like again, that there was a lot of things that were just flat out bad decisions that did work out well because the market was good. And then there's also just the realities of having objectively having certain kinds of privilege, right? I mean, being an entrepreneur is extremely lonely, very emotionally taxing. You don't really have time for friends. And although you might feel like you want to be friends with different people who are in your business, like that, that is limiting or you just can't do it because you're also the boss and you also have like tough decisions to make. So I'd say I became very close with my partners. There was that camaraderie of going through hard things together and going through like difficult money decisions together. But my wife is indispensable for that. She's my, my friend, my meal ticket. It's awesome. You entered at a great time, really. Two thousand, you know, like that time period was. You're probably picking up good deals. I heard you mention that you guys gravitated towards complex projects where you, there was some sweat equity that you could put in. I want to hear about that because that's an unusual strategy when you're just getting started. Well, that strategy happened to us as much as it was by design. So I'd say we. All right. So there are a few different things that are about that market, and I'll sort of describe how they're different than this one. The market was certainly depressed in asset values for real estate. But there was very little capital. And there was also equity. There also wasn't that much equity for markets that were considered tertiary. Philadelphia was basically like written off. We had deals under agreement. And I'd also go back and say, when we started our company, it was like with very little money. As in, we struggled to come up with the money for soft deposits. Not even hard deposits, soft deposits. Because there was very little capital, one, you couldn't get deals under agreement for soft or low deposits. And so there were a number of like value-add deals that I'd say that we tried to buy. But because we had little capital, it wasn't going to be something we're going to close with ourselves. So we needed to rely on institutional partners to do that. And, you know, we were just through, you know, being young. And so my partners were older than me and and didn't know what they were doing in real estate. Like I kind of provided some of like 
the quad panache. And, you know, I went to a, a fancy school. And so like the people could point to me and say like, all right, we've got smart people that run the company and things like that too. But it didn't close the deal with institutional folks. So I'd say we tried to go in that direction of buying existing and that just didn't pan out. Where we did find a niche within complex projects was we sort of, it's the two that kind of hit. And one of the advantages of complex projects that other people don't want to do them. And there is more sweat equity to be earned because there is more work to be done. And they also require particularly full gut conversions, which is the first like two major projects that we did. They require you to look at real estate in not the down the fairway. Despite the fact that, especially over the first year, we didn't make nearly as much money as someone who was just buying units in, you know, I have some friends who bought in the Dallas area and around Florida for, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a door apartments and they absolutely crushed it. I try not to have jealousy around that too much. But I'd say, despite the fact that I made less money, and I don't think this is just post hoc rationalizing, I learned quite a bit. It's what made me good as a developer of one, having to do everything myself, leasing, reading zoning codes. You know, we just didn't have the money to hire outside folks or as few as possible we were doing it. You just had to wear 27 hats and just figure things out. And then also on the complex project, what you learned was I cannot look at it the way as everyone else because I will not be able to pay as much as them. I cannot execute in the way they can. So you had to look for deals that were outside of what other people wanted to do. And I think that's just a really good investment training background. You guys ended up doing what, roughly 1,200 units, give or take? Depends how you count. Like there were, there was, there were some student housing beds. So like whether those are units or whether those are beds happen. So I'd say roughly in like the 800 to 1200 unit range. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we did. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. 
You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. I wanted to jump off and discuss you mentioned that there's a lack of developers. There's a lack of housing, certainly. I want to hear your thoughts on how we remedy that, how we go about training great developers. You had a kind of hands-on, very hands-on experience in learning. Talk to us a little bit more about how you see just more developers coming online. It's very challenging. It's very challenging. I have thought about this question for years. It's something that I care a lot about. When I was at Cross, I ran it's like the most comprehensive internship program that I've that I've heard of for a, a developer our size, and partly because I had connections with the school there. So I, I tr- learned to train a lot of people. Most of them ended up um, going onto the investing side and private equity rather than being a developer, although some did. I've been thinking about that for since about like eight or eight years ago, maybe nine nine years ago. The difficulty with training developers is that developers don't do anything. They're the conductor of the orchestra. You need to know how everything works, but certainly when you're getting to be good, like you're not, you might focus on one point, but like to be really good at one piece is not enough. And so where I think it's really difficult is that by the time someone advances in their career to the point where they might like feel ready, they're proficient in one piece mainly. And being a developer requires you to know enough about like architecture, enough about construction, enough about leasing and how the entire things work and also have the stature to go to capital and say, trust me. Ground up development is there is certainly a track record aspect to investing, but a lot of it come down to, you know, you talking to investors, you being in that room and you saying, come hell or high water, I will get this done. And that is a difficult thing to have enough experience to do that. How do we solve that? I'd say it is my belief. It's that it's done through just sheer guts at early stage. People just have like that entrepreneurial spirit, frankly, beyond what I had. There are many examples of that of people doing that on Twitter who just like jump in and do it. And there's no real training for those kinds of people. They're crazy enough to just like do it um, regardless. I don't really don't have anything to say to them because they just will become developers. Where I think about it and focus on a little bit more is how to help people who understand a part of real estate very well, particularly on the design and construction side. They've seen those projects be done. They believe and I trust them to execute it. But what they need is some bits of education. The hard part is like the experience. And the other hard part is that real estate development projects have such a long feedback loop and you don't do very many of them. So you might do like two or three a year. You need to kind of do it for a little while to really understand it. I don't have an exact answer other than I know that it needs to be done. I am part of different working groups and there are pieces that we solve better. I mean, one thing we can talk a little bit later is I am working on things to help professionals identify sites better because the initial underwriting of real estate is not that complicated, right? It's here's what revenue is. Here's what the final costs of construction are. Does that deal generally work? Where does that fit with the market? And I would say that many people who are professionals don't understand those basic levers. So that initial part of the education can be done through courses or I'm building some models that people can use to at least find a site that pencils. And then how you execute it is either going to be bringing that to a developer, working on it with them, or maybe it's if you have the right connections to capital and you have the right confidence, 
then maybe try and executing that yourself. But that is the path that I'm currently taking. There are a tremendous number of challenges that need to happen. And I also think there's a degree of, um, in our industry, bias that needs to go away. At the moment, the main path to become a developer is to come out through capital markets or to come out through acquisitions. And that happens because those people are a little closer to money and can raise the money. And then they try and figure it out later by partnering with people in construction or by partnering or hiring people in the other phases. But I would really like to see people in the other disciplines of real estate, management, construction, design, be able to make that jump as well. I interviewed Sean Sweeney a couple of weeks ago, and he started, as you know, probably as a receptionist at maybe Trammell Crow or a division of offshoot of Trammell Crow. He said, if you're a younger guy to probably pursue that kind of, just get your foot in the door. He said, if you're an older guy, try to find sites, try to find deals and bring them to partners and ask to sit in on the process. Is that something you'd agree with? If you're a younger guy, just get started, get your foot in the door, do whatever it takes. And if you're an older guy, try to find some deals that people would be interested in. Yes. But I still would say that like, I think it does require, again, other than for those people who are just insanely entrepreneurial, but for the person who is trying to sequentially get into it, I do think that it's important early in your career, realistically, to go be an expert in something. I mean, I do have the kind of bias that I think that numbers do drive the project. Right? I mean, at the end of the day, real estate is it's an investment. And so you have to understand that piece when you're young is the right time to learn how things underwrite. So I'd say that is probably still the best like initial way. You jump in, you underwrite a whole lot of different projects. You understand that when people put in money and how important those things are. And then I think, and then it's important, like kind of do whatever you can to like get your foot in the door. But it also kind of, you have to be, have your foot in the, in the right place. Even Sean's story, which is an incredible one. The reason that he got good was because he got his foot in the door of a place that, as he even tells it, got overwhelmed and had to give him things to do. If you go to work for like a very large firm and no disrespect to the Heinz or the Tremble Crows or whoever the world, like people who've been doing this well for a very long time, the larger firm you go to, the more you're going to be siloed within your different space. You will see people who do their jobs really well down the hall, but you're not going to get to do that as much. Sean and I got to do those things um, just out of sheer necessity. I would tell someone that when they are going to get the foot in the door, be as close to the heat as you possibly can. And by that, I mean doing the things that are going to be unpleasant. The difficulty of that is that's almost always going to mean for someone who is, who's been relatively good at their job for two or three years, that's going to mean taking an enormous pay cut, like enormous. There's an incredible amount of like humble pie and, and willingness to see the long term of like what Sean is get willing to be a receptionist, right? Like I wasn't paid, like did not make any money for a very long time. But what we both of us learned in was experience. That is going to be something that for someone who really wants to be a developer, that is something you're going to have to do itself. You will have to pay the piper on exchanging money for adding tools or experience to your tool belt. I wanted to ask you who some of your favorite developers are. We mentioned Eric Weatherholtz. Um, you had mentioned Marsh Collective, I believe, in an interview that I watched earlier that you did. I wanted to hear more about some developers that you admire and why particularly that you admire them. What are they doing that's different than average developers? This is probably biased in being a smaller local developer myself and also in studying a lot of different projects. I would say I particularly admire... Oh, and, and also the money out, money ball aspect too. I'd say I particularly admire people who do really well with very limited and very complicated projects. Again, like I don't think that I need to give props to 
generational companies, like their success demonstrates that they are in fact the best. I admire most developers who have made projects amazing despite enormous challenges or who have the vision to see something just like different than anyone else. Marsh Collective and John, and John Marsh in Opal Lake, Alabama is someone who I think exemplifies that as much as anyone I've met in the country. He just, he, he invests in things because it is right and also knows that he can make money doing that. He's a developer I admire a, a tremendous amount. I'd say someone like Sean too, someone who just says, I believe that design is right and that it is going to make more money. I mean, you can't demonstrate that. That doesn't even show up like on a spreadsheet yet. I, I would hope that eventually it does. But I mean, you look at his buildings and absolutely beautiful. And why? Because he just thinks that it ought to be. I also do admire like the discipline, which I have not had as much, but the discipline of people who say, I am going to do this one thing really well build an organization around it. Clearly referencing some other different people who I've become friends with in the Twitter committee, clearly Chris Powers and Moses Kagan have done that very well. But on the other execution side, and also to give a little shout out to Philadelphia, there are two different developers there who I am, who I admire quite a bit. One is a woman named um, Lindsay Scanapico. She's my age. So she's an incredible developer of mainly of someone who could take a school and have the vision of just saying like, I'm going to make this cool. I'm going to make this nice. And, and it's an incredible help to solve business in Philadelphia. Tell me about that. That so she took an old dilapidated school. I looked at a school recently that's totally dilapidated in a really bad part of Columbus, and it's just hard to get your mind wrapped around what it could be. Although there's tons of potential. Tell me more about her project. Her school was called the Edward Bach Technical School, and it was a it was a school where people learned technical trades, machinery, sewing, bread making, things like that, and then unfortunately. Uh, closed. And so there was a kind of an RFP put out on like what kind of developers wanted to do. A lot of people wanted to turn to apartments. And I think her vision for it was always that it could be creative office. The difficulty with any school or conversion project, the school in particular, is they're incredibly deep, right? Like they just don't have that many windows. The floor plate is difficult. The hallways are incredibly wide. The HVC system is like to the hallways, maybe not always to the classrooms because they rely on, you know, fresh air ventilation enormously challenging projects. And I'd say the thing that I appreciate most about her, so I think she started doing that project by putting the coolest feature about the building is it is the tallest building in South Philadelphia. So it has an unimpeded view of the skyline. I'd highly recommend anyone who visits Philadelphia to go to the restaurant um, that's on the top of the roof there. It's incredible. And you can see the entire city and there's nothing around. It's uh, like an eight or nine story building in a two story residential neighborhood. But the thing that, that, that I admire most about that project is it's very easy to say, We're not going to do renovations and we're going to keep like the feel of a high school and make it cool. Most people, when they do it, it's just going to come off cheap. She and her team did it in a way that it is just dripping with cool and it is dripping with attracting that right kind of entrepreneurial, like small business person by leaving the classrooms in place mostly. Like there were systems that needed upgraded, but it was not a significant investment and it is still an incredibly neat project. So I have tremendous respect for that and tremendous respect for her as a developer, despite her success not being as large as all those other firms. So I want to jump into what you're up to now, Form Analytics. Talk to us. You left Cross in around 2018? It was about like a 12-month sort of like exit process to make sure that like my team was staffed up right. And I did want to do right by my partner. It was at the end of 2017 that I had an epiphany that, that I wanted to move on and do something else. I'd say the idea that crystallized was, I was incredibly proud of what I've done. I loved my team. I love my partners. 
I knew that I had become very good in the development entitlement space. And yet I still wanted to do something more, something else. And I think what I had missed was I saw what was going on in, in technology and in Silicon Valley. And I also saw like what was lacking within my industry. I mainly think that's around a, a lack of good data. And so that, that's what I wanted to do. So I'd say I spent 12 months like making sure that I was hiring and training the right people. And also during that time, I took like a sabbatical in San Francisco for a few months, moved our family out there, partly because I loved my job so much. And it was important that I took the training rules off different people. So they were going to be able to do that. The sabbatical and kind of departure from cross occurred like over the year of 2018. You're in San Francisco, I think, for the entire summer. How was that? It was amazing. I mean, I, 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 I continue to believe like despite the political challenges, like I still think that San Francisco is like might be the most beautiful city in the country. Its access to nature is unparalleled. We were in a great neighborhood that's right between Gold Gate Park and the Presidio. Where was that? What I lived there about three years off and on. 19th and Balboa. So in Richmond. A few more families and we had two kids at the time. It was just a great place down the street from a playground. We could walk to Golden Gate Park. My wife's parents came out to visit us for like a week and they're from East Texas in the middle of the woods. And they came out, we went and visited and walked around like the middle of Golden Gate Park and there was nothing, right? And my mother and I was like, feels like we're not even in the city. This is nature. And I was like, it is. And Muir Woods is right across like right across the bridge. So San Francisco was incredible. And it was also great to be able to do that kind of a sabbatical where I didn't have any particular work. If there were a whole lot of coffees and lunches, I think it was good that I did not have the next thing lined up. So it was just meeting people. It was just hearing ideas. It was just meeting other entrepreneurs and seeing what the spirit was like. It's a very different split between the East and West Coast. Um, in the West Coast, people are much more open to getting lunches and coffees. And also, I'd say to like open Rolodex and help. The downside of that is you end up having, this can be a good thing, but you end up having a lot more meetings that aren't productive or that like, can waste your time. Whereas on the East Coast, I'd say things are much more transactional, which I don't mind. It's clearer. But if you want to get to someone through someone else, there's a toll, not like an explicit one today, but you're going to owe someone a favor. In San Francisco, that's just not the culture that I experienced. That was a, a great place for me to be, great place to get ideas and also just to relax and you know, be with my family. And then how did Form Analytics develop out of that, that time? And tell us what Form does. For, you know, first of all, tell us what you guys are up to. Form is a floor plan data analytics company that is building software to enable developers to build units that are going to generate the highest rent per square foot for new development projects. That's what it does. And uh, there's going to be more things that does in the future on site selection, on forecasting a better uh, where a unit is going to be within projects that are coming online and things like that. But at its core, it is a company that is built around a proprietary data set of apartment floor plans. And then with that data set, there are a lot of applications that come after that. The genesis of form was around quantifying space better. And that kind of goes back to the initial projects that I worked on. We did in historic redevelopment projects, since the building is not built for apartments, you end up with a lot of weird spaces. In an efficient apartment building, you're going to have you can design it so that you have this many ones, this many twos, and they, and they all sort of stack and they're very efficient. That just doesn't happen in those other conversion projects. Objectively, one thing that I got to see at the very beginning, and part of it I led and part of it I was able to just kind of like ride shotgun on, was seeing many more floor plans 
per overall unit count. So I think, you know, the first project was like 200 and they were over 30. And the next one, there were also over 30, like in 110 units. So you just get a level of reps of unit types. And you also have things that have features that are similar, but they aren't exactly the same. Very early on, in fact, for the, the seminary project, I tried building a model in order to price things well. And what I ended up doing was, and this is standard, what everyone else does, you give each one of their features and you just try to assign dollar amounts to them. Fourth floor, this over the third floor, $10. This view over that one, $50 or some things like that. What happens in a messy data set is like you just add more and more and more, you know, what's called dummy variables, right? In order to just try and make that work. But the core rent comes down to unit type and you multiply it by like a base rent per square foot. And then you have all these different pluses and minuses. And so I knew from my background, like that was some formal, some just kind of informal in sports statistics. That was just like a really bad way of doing things. But the only good way of doing things is to say, where are my units compared to everything else? And that's kind of where the limitation where I ran into very early is like, we subscribe to CoStar, we subscribe to some of those other things, but they would just tell you averages and prices. And that just wasn't good enough to make decisions. And then the next set of projects that we got into were building in some high barrier to entry markets. Also was incredibly good background because you could not build what was already there because unfortunately they hadn't built enough housing. So you knew that you couldn't survey individual comps. You had to come up with different ways or methods to say, what could the rent be? What could the mix be? So I remember one of the earlier projects that we did on that we did for that was I ended up like doing some data analytics and pushing us to do a unit mix that I would say is very atypical. It was ended up being like 75% twos and threes, which just like isn't done. It's very difficult to underwrite because the basis per unit gets really high. It's a fight with the bank, not fisticuffs, but a lot of justification in the bank for here's why the basis works with your appraiser, et cetera. And those, I'd say, projects ended up forming, no pun intended, forming the basis for like what I thought was wrong. So on those next projects, I started asking an architect to tell me what was actually inside our units. Like how long were the kitchen cabinets? Like how large is the bedroom? How large was the closet? And then I just started manually looking at other comps in the area and saying, well, how large are my units compared to theirs? Which have these features? Do we really need an island or not? Which units have a sink in the island? I think I realized, again, this was still while I was across that this needed to be better, just to even make myself better as a developer. I went through that process manually of doing that for most of the units in the Philadelphia area of just observation, looking down or visiting them and measuring different things. I'd say the process that I wanted to do and started learning a little bit of, a little bit of Python, a little bit of JavaScript, a little bit of SQL was how can I solve this particular problem? There's a lot of units out there and I want to catalog them. And then the other observation that came from that, which is why I focused on floor plans is it has always bothered me that floor plans were readily available online and yet were almost useless to a tenant. Didn't you say like floor plans are almost like an afterthought in many cases in development? Absolutely. You just have to look at them and think about them a little bit better and especially look at some of the things that were supposed to be substantive. Like look at the dimensions, right? Like it's not measuring like the length of a wall. It's measuring like a room with like vacant space. So you don't know where a line starts, where it ends. And I, to me, that one exemplifies like why they are such like an afterthought. People do strange things and or try to punch them up. It's always to me laughable when they change the name of a room, right? Like bedroom becomes like sleep. And bedroom is a perfectly good definition. Like everyone knows what it means, but like sleep or attire or bathe or soak. It's like, what is that? It's a uh, market speak for no purpose. 
no one is going to be inclined to rent that because of the, of a cool name. And so I'd say I recognize there's this very large data set of things that could be useful because I was making use of it as a professional. And also it needed to communicate things better to tenants. Also in the way that like search worked, like you only have to go through Zillow enough times to say like, is this three bedroom? Is it four bedroom? Is the fourth bedroom underground? The problem with the homes is significantly harder to data set than is apartments, but it still exists with apartments. Again, as I end up getting into various spats online about it's like, does a bedroom sized room that has a closet, but does not have a window, like, is that a bedroom? Yes or no? Is it a bedroom because people are going to live in it that way? Like, in fact, you can look at it and tell people are, or is it what conforms to the code? If that is even part of the code, all those things are bouncing around such that I knew the direction that I wanted to go. And I knew that I wanted to work on the problem enough on my own to understand it generally. I'm never going to be like an engineer. I'm never going to be like a real data scientist. But from what I knew in development, what I don't want to do is ever someone to BS me. Like that's always when you feel the most vulnerable. It's like someone tells you something either in terms of time or cost or just their method. And if you're completely blind, that's when you're at risk of needing to trust experts too much. That's always getting their domain of expertise and you do need to let them go, but you have to be able to have some guardrails on for yourself. That was the way that I went. And I think it helped me learn by having a very clear problem that I wanted to solve. So everything that I was learning was to do this particular thing. I would certainly not say that I'm proficient in any one of those different languages or uses it. My knowledge of that is limited to what it enabled me to do. Can you talk to us about within apartments, what are some design aspects that do maximize revenue and then some design aspects that you see that are common that, are, that don't make sense? Well, I need to start by saying that it all depends on the individual market and it all depends on units that are currently within the market. I think the main, one of the main problems within development in general, which flows down to unit mix and floor plan design, is that people build and invest looking at their project and looking at how it fits into the market today. So you'll survey the market and say, aha, studios get this. And so then you say, well, I'm going to build studios. At the same time, six other developers look at the same data and making the same decisions. There is a coordination problem. And again, there's also like a different market. Like you wouldn't build the same kinds of parts in a three-story walk-up apartment in the suburbs as you would in you know, a high rise in the city. So there's, I'd say with those kinds of things away, the general things that I would say, two of which are supported both by data and I'd say anecdotally. One is that certainly in the city, in the suburbs too, there is way too much square footage allocated to closets. And I know that's hard for some people to accept in terms of they, they have a lot of stuff they want to put in there. There is a cause and effect or there is a chicken and egg to that. People have more stuff because more space to put it in. You know, but if you look at other Western wealthy nations like in Europe, very few of their bedrooms have closets. And when they do, they're quite small. In the US, we have a disproportionate percentage of the unit dedicated to closets, particularly in apartments. That is the number one one that I would say is a problem. And that is, I would say, in nearly all circumstances, walk-in closets should be converted to regent closets. There's two things that that enables to happen. Either, if you have the flexibility, you can then use that space or you can make units smaller. And smaller units, just due to like the law of diminishing marginal returns, can be cheaper on a face rent, but generate higher room per square foot. So that's just better. Now, that only makes sense if you can take that same square footage and, and use it somewhere else. If you don't have that circumstance and you have, like, say, the fixed unit and you can say, it's going to be 725 square foot one bedroom. What is the maximum way to, to increase like the value? What I would say under those circumstances, 
I've done this now on almost every project that I've worked on in the last 16 months. You take that space and you allocate that towards a small windowless office, which someone could use for storage if they wanted to. But the general design of the way how apartments work in ground up construction is you have a bedroom suite on one side and then a living room kitchen suite on the other, which is nearly every apartment. You walk in directly into the kitchen and then you have the bedroom on you know, either the left or the right side. So what I would generally say is take the square footage that is in the walk-in closet and uh, convert it into a home office, which I don't even think you need to be a believer in work from home, like full work from home, in order to know that there is everyone like us who is going to do Zoom at home occasionally, particularly with the demographic of like new apartments, which is frankly fairly tailored or fairly narrow. I think I don't know anyone who doesn't, who wouldn't make some use of that as a kid's room, as a nursery, as a home office of some degree. So like those, that 50 square feet is a perfectly good small room. And that is what I would say generates higher rent per square foot for the given space by five to seven percent at least. And that's even in the circumstance where the bedroom is relatively small. If you can take a one bedroom and turn it function to two bedroom, one bath, then you can really increase the rents and frankly make rent cheaper for people who are trying to live in that area. Does in fact build windowless bedrooms, but it, in my opinion, just like helps, helps the market overall. So that's the main one. And the other general relationship, again, it kind of depends in intensity in each market is that is rent per square foot is positively correlated with living room width. And that kind of just means more windows, bigger living rooms are better. I mean, I think of that because bedrooms are primarily for sleep. Sometimes they're used as home offices, but if you follow the first principle, wouldn't as much. Bedrooms are too wide and that space should be given to the living room instead. Those are the two things that are definitely true. And then there's other ones that are more or less true. And that is that kitchens are far too large in the United States. I was going to mention that. I heard you say that kitchens are often too big. Far too big. Far too big. I mean, it kind of comes to the problem of uh, they are designed by people who live in homes because they're older, they have more money, and they're just kind of looking at saying like, I like this. And I'd say that's one of the key things that having a lack of data drives. Without data, people rely on their own personal preference. Or they survey the people who they know. Maybe people in their team, maybe they're maybe their sparse spouse or partner. But that's just a really bad way of doing it. And, and I think developers even recognize it. But the lack of data, just you end up going towards that because you say, if I don't know, then at least I can trust that I like it or that my son or daughter likes it or that the people in my office like it or that it's done well somewhere else in another market. So I'll just copy and paste that to here. And that's just a, a bad decision-making approach or, or an incomplete one would be better done with data on different decisions on how much do people value having a second access to the bathroom, right? Like everyone always says, I would hate to walk through someone's bedroom to get to like the bathroom. How often does that happen? Is that your preference? Is that someone else's? I do a lot of Twitter polls on this particular topic, on these types of topics, not always to drive a specific result. I certainly don't use, I certainly don't need to use it to inform my own data, but more kind of prove to the audience that is out there that people have very different opinions. If things are all built towards one set of preferences, which they generally are, it means you are not building for the 25 to 30% of people who don't mind walking through bedrooms to get to the public bathroom because they don't plan to have people over that much anyway, right? So, you know, there's just different, uh, different human preferences are much larger than, than you would believe by looking at apartment design as it currently exists. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. 
Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I wanted to talk to you about two guiding beliefs that I heard that you have. The first is that apartments are products, and that the second is apartments should be designed furnished. Talk to us what you mean about by the first belief and why you feel strongly about the second apartments as a product. I would say apartments should be a product, but primarily they're not. So this is you know something that I've picked up in reading more books around you know being in San Francisco and thinking people more on the tech side of about the idea of product. And the good definition of product or the good guiding principle of product is has a customer in mind very clearly. Who are they? How do they make decisions? What's the customer like? How can you delight? that person. And one of the important things about that, especially at the beginning end, is to say, who are my customers not? Who am I not trying to build for? That idea is antithetical to the way that most real estate developers approach it. I would say the guiding functional product philosophy for most apartment buildings is, how do I offend as few people as possible? Right? And they say, like, I, want to, I want everyone to live here. And what I often end up pushing back on is, like, you say that, you might even say you desire that, but like, that isn't realistic. One, you're going to be designing for people who can afford this kind of rent. Two, you're going to be designing for people who want to live or other around people who can afford this one. And three, you know, like based on unit sizes, you're already pretty restricted in who this is. So it's most buildings are generally built for 
people without children, either one end of the age spectrum or the other, more within, you know, 20s to early 30s. The idea that as part of this product is that more buildings should be built that way. That is done within condoms, it just isn't done within apartments. Um, apartments, all the walls are white. The cabinets are three different color palettes. And to me, when I see sameness, that proves to me that it isn't right. I'm not saying that cabinets should be green and walls should be purple, but there should be more variety than there is. And the product philosophy of someone saying, who am I trying to please is something that every developer ought to do and is probably a large portion of the value that I provide when I'm giving someone like data on their apartments. Because the first question that someone always asks me is, Bobby, how am I going to design this building to maximize where per square foot, right? How are we going to change, move walls, et cetera? And I'll always respond, well, it depends on who's your customer. I can show you units or, or, or dimensional things that will get the maximum rent per square foot based on their market because it's targeting downsizers, like very explicit. And they're crushing it by doing that. The building that's going to target, you know, 23 year olds is going to have very different attributes. That's what I mean by apartment as a product. And I also think that that's going to unlock apartment as a brand, which does not exist in real estate today. Some people argue that some of the large firms are brands. I wholeheartedly reject that mainly because a brand, to me, by definition, is something that someone else would pay more for. Or given the choice between A and B, would always choose A based on the brand, not based on its attributes. Apple being the obvious example, like the technical specs don't really matter because the brand is strong enough that someone is just going to choose it for what it means, for the simplicity, because they've chosen it before. But that's what a real brand is. Apartments, I have never met someone, no disrespect to them, but I have never met someone who moved to a city and said, where's the gray star building? I want to live in that. Like that just isn't something that they say. They say, I want to live near work. I want to pay this price. I want this particular kind of unit. Maybe they had a good experience with gray star. And after they've already like filtered on everything, if the price is more or less the same, and if the commute is basically the same, maybe they will choose the same property management company they had before. But those aren't brands. And then also there's turnover generally like within management companies as, as buildings sell or not. So that does make it a little bit harder. But once you can define a product like really well, then someone, it would make sense for someone to move into a city, say, I like that product. I want to live in that kind of a community. I want to live with those kinds of features. The things that have done that well, I would say are things like co-living, which is a very clear product, knows exactly who it's for. Again, it, it does make sense for someone to choose that. That's apartments as a product. Apartments furnished, is that what you're talking about as a brand when you're almost like a hotel? Like, we're, Talk to us about how you feel apartments should be furnished with high quality furniture or your thoughts behind that. I thought were interesting. I do too. I would first say, I believe that apartments... Okay, so there's two different beliefs that one is in the United States, almost no apartments are furnished. It's just not something that the consumer believes people, I don't exactly understand why, want to move their furniture between apartments, which is one of the most stressful things. But for some reason, they say that they want that. I'd say, I don't believe that's true. Like, that's really true. But they will say that. I guess a few things why I find that's nonsensical. It's an apartment is $25,000, $2,000 a month. So it's a $25,000 good. To me, it doesn't make sense to choose between $25,000 goods on where your furniture fits, which one it goes well when, I don't know, the aftermarket value of your stuff, particularly for like people who are in these kinds of apartments is worth like, I don't know, maybe two grand. It shouldn't be the case. But the main reason why like I believe that apartments ought to be designed to be furnished is one, it kind of fits with the product thing of like, how is someone going to live? How is the space? How can we do this best for their lives? 
but it's also kind of around the design and efficiency. When you decide, when you decide that things are going to be one way, you don't need to provide the options for other ways. And so you can drive sizes down without someone losing any of the features that are actually going to be like part of their day to day life. So I think that apartments are just too large or kind of in the United States are just in that weird spot where they are large enough to give the semblance of some optionality, but not really. While not like really driving to, they're just caught in that word things like, so they pretend to give someone like the ability to make the space their own. And yet no one does that because people, like half the people, 40 to 40 to 50% of people do turn over every unit apartment. So you're not going to spend the time like me. I've walked into maybe 20 units, maybe 20 apartments out of the thousands that I've done in my life where I've walked in and said like, this is beautiful. Like this is just really nice. Like it just doesn't happen because no one has the time and investments to do that well. They never look like the model, right? Like Chris Powers said, I just threw a futon down and I wanted it to look like the model, but it never does. Exactly. They never do. I think that it would be better if that happened. And I also just think like as a business and investment, if you look at Europe where the large pieces of furniture are just standard in, I don't know the exact numbers, but it is common. Like you would expect it to come with like certain pieces and and types of furniture to make the space work well. So at a minimum, what I think in the United States is that the percentage should go from less than half of a percent to like a meaningful percentage. So there's, I think there should be a large increase in that product type. I think that it's a good investment. I know that it would change the design of units quite a bit. I mean, you can look at some of the different technology companies like Bumblebee Space, which I think is a tremendous company, right? Like with the bents that are built into the structure of the buildings, they can come down and give different uses the same space. I think it's there. It just becomes like obvious that like that is better. Now for everyone, right? Someone needs to want that exact size bed or they need to be okay with that style or that credenza. But for the people who are okay with that, your life within the unit is significantly better. If I was to recommend what I would say, like I think Bumblebee Space is certainly the leader in that right now. I would hope that there are more options for it. And the other, I guess the last reason why I believe that apartments should be furnished is because there are furniture companies that are out there, but that still kind of enters the, the logistics problem is still there. And that kind of adds a level of cost that doesn't actually drive the price down. If you design a unit first, you can make it smaller. And if you design a unit first and build in things that do in fact last, then the additional cost of the rent should be marginal, right? You know, the basis of an apartment is new construction apartment is, you know, a minimum, like in the city, $300,000. The cost of getting nice furniture is going to be what, like, I don't know, 15 grand, 20 grand. So adding on that extra basis, even though the furniture will depreciate faster than the apartment should only add maybe 10% to the rent, 7% to the rent, something like that. And I think there's plenty of people who would pay for just not have to go through that. That's why I believe they should be furnished or designed around that. So my last question here, Bobby, before we wrap up is before we got started recording you back to apartments as a product, you had mentioned uh, an area that you're really excited about, which is family-oriented apartments. You had mentioned that a lot of apartments are just designed mostly for singles at the moment. Talk to us about this product niche and why you think it's a nice trend that you're going to be focusing on. As an investor, it's something that I'm, I'd say it's a product that I want to invest in exclusively as a real estate investor. And that's because on one hand, it just isn't being built. So I just believe that there are outsized returns in building something that does not exist. The demand is clearly there. For people who live in the city, right? There's even a lot of, as I say, like talk about someone who says like, I love the city, I love living here, but I can't find any place, anywhere to stay. I mean, we lived at Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia for a while. And we were like, we had one of few three bedroom apartments that existed in the entire neighborhood. 
And it was teeming with people who move from different life stages, you know, single to couple and thinking about having kids. But if you cannot stay, then it has this cascading effect of because you only going to be somewhere for a few years, you don't put down the same kind of roots. If you just know you can stay a little bit longer, then I think you put down, in my opinion, like exponentially longer roots. The difference between two years and four years or five years or having your first kid just makes an enormous difference, helps people, I think, like advocate more for better cities or safety. Good thing. I think that it's a product that ought to exist. And I have partly through floor plan stuff, partly through site selection stuff. There's a number of reasons why it makes sense to build that. No one else is building it. You're not going to compete with the other larger developers. It fits on a lot of infill sites that are kind of orphan sites that a traditional developer is like won't get out of bed for unless the project's like 250 units. Makes sense for these to be smaller. And it also, I'd say, I think makes sense within this product type to be smaller, 250 units with, you know, for built for family oriented housing. What kind of square footage? The, the one you lived in was what, about 1,200 square feet when you had your wife and kids? With three kids and a dog, I'd say it will require customer cultural like education on people being okay with living in spaces they're unaccustomed to. So I, I'd say the things that I'm looking at would be three bedroom, two baths getting below 1,200 square feet, like maybe close to 1,000, much smaller bedrooms, space allocated to living room as much as possible. And the reason why that has to be the case is because it is just a reality. Since real estate is an investment, it is a reality that you have to maximize rent per square foot just to do the best for your investors. And you cannot do that at these larger spaces. I talked to plenty of people say, oh, great. Like, I love a family unit and they describe what they want. It's like 1,800 square feet. It's like, well, that's going to need to be a condo or that's going to need to be an apartment that is not downtown. This, these units on a per square foot basis have to generally compete with the 450 square foot one bedroom studio, you know, which that's going to get in a city $350, a square foot. You know, the family unit doesn't need to get quite to that level because they should have lower turnover and a better NOI as a result of those kinds of factors, but it needs to be dang close. That's why you have to drive the, uh, the size down. There's two different types that I look at that. One is within that 700, 750 square foot range, building units that are like one bedroom dens, which function as like a one bedroom work from home office. And also something that you could put a child in as a nursery. So like up to the age of two, I'd say not having windows is a feature, not a bug. And, and being able to stay in place and not move. I mean, the number of young couples and friends we have, they have an apartment, get pregnant. They're immediately looking for an apartment. Right, because it just doesn't work. There's no space for their, for their kid. And so I think those kinds of units are the kinds of things that gives people flexibility to stay in the city, to stay car free or car light, to continue to invest in those kinds of neighborhoods. That is the focus of the, of the investment that I have or that, that I'm going to make within real estate apart from what I do day to day, which is build real estate technology. And your vision of it is infill development downtown. You're not talking about suburban stuff at all, right? Yeah, I'd say suburban stuff is done like quite well by other people. When you have like an open site, you can build at low costs and they are building like units that are, that are slightly more family friendly where I'd say there was the biggest gap is in these urban or very close to urban areas where they are currently built. I would say it's any area where they are currently building very small one bedrooms because they are building only that. The other thing that I like doing is just like riding the coattails of the wave that someone else is creating. You know, if you have four different incredible developers who are all going to build you know, high rises that are targeted at 26 year olds. Well, in four years, 26 year olds become 30 year olds and 30 year olds like have more couples and 32 year olds like are going to have a kid. So I just feel like, great. Like I know I don't have to compete with them. And in fact, I can take all of your tenants uh, willingly, right? Like I'm not, I'm not competing with you anymore. So that's another reason why I I kind of like those, those generators. So I'd say it's anywhere where those kinds of factors exist, where other people are building the same exact product 
that they can create a neighborhood where someone wants to stay. And then they can stay by, you know, moving across the street to a project that makes more sense for their new lifestyle or their new circumstances. Yeah, I think it was Sam Zell that said, zig when others are zagging. It seems like everyone's zigging down to the 450 square foot apartments. Oh, of course they do. I'd like to talk a little bit, because I mentioned you know, like a little bit about the things that I'm doing on the software side. Maybe I should have done it. Maybe I should have used that as a jumping point on a question earlier. Now let's get into that. Do you want about the test fit? Is it test? Am I saying that right? Test fit? That is right. So I'd say the vision that I've always had with the floor plan work that I'm doing is for it to inform design on the front end. What I get to do now and what I've done over the last 16 months is to help developers who already have a building laid out, who are looking to maximize the rep per foot of that building. To get kind of technical, it's usually between for developers who are in between the SD and DD projects. That means they got an initial set of floor plans for the architect and they say, are these good? How can I make them better? Who do I try to target? Everything has kind of been set and you can't make large differences. I do use data to show like how someone increased rent by like two to four percent, or I'd say one to four percent. And that makes a big difference, but it can't make, I've done that now on nearly 14,000 units for developers across the country that have to work with some of the top class folks to try to help make their projects better and more profitable. And that's fun and it's been successful. But where I think it really makes sense to go is to go further on the project. I've become quite good friends with the CEO and founder of um, Testament, Clifton, and we've bonded over floor plans and design for like a while now. But I think it always made sense for us to do something together to test it does automated drawings or automates and speeds up the process of designing sites like very quickly. So it is not like... It's an, it's an AI design firm, is that? It is. It is an AI design firm for, the, for what's called like feasibility analysis. So someone looks at a site and they say, what can I build here? Or will it financially make sense? And one of the problems that I end up trying to correct in floor plans is I'll say like, yes, you can build it here, but like the contours of your building are so poor that you're limited in what you can do. Or had you done it this other way, you could have made it significantly better. Instead of feasibility analysis, what people are currently doing is they're saying, I have my underwriting. The zoning says I can build this many square feet. Great. Let's build that. And then we'll figure out the plans later. Getting early and especially using the data that I have and the process I have, in conjunction with someone like Testbit, who is best in class on that particular side of it, means you can really unlock building units, maximizing returns, but also building, locating the building in the right space, having the exact right building shape to maximize returns and to make units the best for their individual market rather than doing it after the fact. And there's a lot of other jumping points off of what I think that does too, is making sites early on better also allows more people, especially architects and GCs, who can use software, understand those things better. Does this deal work? What we're building together is a tool so that someone can, at the very front end, very quickly, like within you know, 24, 40 hours, or even instantaneously, if they want to move walls around, they can say, I want to move this. I want to change the design. I'm within the, build, I'm within the zoning code that this is allowed to do. And these are the metrics such that this deal works. Maybe they can do that deal themselves as a developer, or maybe they can pass it on to someone else. But it solves a lot of the problem of someone saying, a broker or architect or GC. I mean, I get inundated with quests of some younger people who say, like, hey, is this a good deal? And I can look at it in 10 seconds and say, like, this just doesn't work. And what this can solve is at minimum that problem. And what I'm hoping is eventually, and what our vision for that together would be is to make that, I mean, in those weird things, like make the world a better place, right? Like to, to make the world a better place from the, from, from the beginning. In the same way that like Sean does not think about design and footprint and layout and all those things differently. They are all the same to him. Maybe he can describe that or pull that apart, 
maybe he can't clearly, you can tell like that the way that it is designed in all of its factors, like go to how it's going to look, how it's going to feel, like how the experience people have data with AI, I think is the future for a lot of applications that has not been the case in real estate. And so, yeah, over the next two to six months, hopeful to launch a few new products, some that'll be basically like uh, upgrades to test fit and some will be things that forms releasing, but extremely excited about that. And, um, and as we talked a little about the beginning, I'd say like, it is a way in which like, I think it just brings order out of chaos into the world. Is that how you're spending the bulk of your time right now is on test fit? Yeah. Yeah. Is on test fit and sort of the partnership with how that integrates well with data. That is what I am intensely focused on. And it also provides like a jumping point for other things too. Like once I can solve for that within like product that I have, well, then it's frankly like a tool that I will use or I can use to evaluate other sites to make better investments in project by saying early on, which sites will work well for family units and which ones don't. And as of right now, that's a very ponderous process. And I want that to be instant. Can we look forward on Twitter on hearing your announcements of new developments on this? Oh, absolutely. It, those Some of them are going to be pretty early on, are going to be pretty soon. I think the soonest one is going to be underwriting platform so that people who are early into real estate can know if their deal is good with the designs allocated. And the other product that's going to be um, released pretty soon is sort of like a instant with the building and the floor plan analysis, the rent roll, and all of those kinds of things very early on. So a developer can see that or someone in acquisitions can see that before they even get a deal under agreement. So they can have like a, a robust thing to go through their investment committee pre-offer to say, here's the makeup of the building and here's like why we think they can actually generate rents rather than saying, we'll figure that out later. Bobby, I've got, I don't think I got to half of my questions. This has been fun. It's flown by here for me. So really appreciate your time taking the time to speak with us today. For people that want to reach out to you and learn more about you or maybe get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Honestly, on Twitter, despite like the challenges, it is still a terrific product for that. So I'd say I keep my DMs open. And I would be happy to reach out, respond to anyone there. I also don't mind like people reaching out directly via email. So I can either say that or you can, I guess, drop it in the show notes or something like that. But I'm, oh, you can say it. Please say it. My email is my first initial and my last name, B F I J A N at formdevelopers.com. Bobby, thanks so much. Of course. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.